Melvin Purvis lingered across the street from the Biograph Theater, beads of sweat pooling around his collar. A crowd of people arrived for the evening showing of Manhattan melodrama, but Purvis was looking for a woman in orange. Around 8.30 p.m., he spotted her. The orange skirt Anna Sage wore was so bright that it glowed under the streetlights. Anna was with her friend, Polly Hamilton. Together, they were draped on the arms of a man in a straw hat and glasses. He was Purvis's intended target. His name, John Dillinger. Purvis's FBI agents were stationed at every exit of the biograph. The plan was to take down Dillinger as he left the theater to try and minimize any disturbance. Unfortunately, the manager of the biograph had become suspicious of the activity outside and called the Chicago police. The arrival of cops could jeopardize everything. It might spook Dillinger to run. There were also rumors that Dillinger had friends in the police department. Purvis couldn't risk another embarrassing getaway. But by 10.30 p.m., everything was still under control. And as waves of moviegoers filed out of the theater, Purvis spotted his informant again, the woman in orange. It was time. He signaled his agents by striking a match and lighting his cigar. As agents drew their weapons, Dillinger spooked. He bolted down an alleyway as fast as he could, but he didn't get far. As many as five shots are said to have been fired, And just like that, the target was dead. After nearly five months of pursuit, the FBI announced they had killed public enemy number one. Or so they said. Dillinger was known to have blue eyes, but the man the FBI shot, his eyes were brown. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our second episode on celebrity bank robber John Dillinger. In 1934, the FBI deemed Dillinger public enemy number one. At the time, he'd allegedly committed 24 bank robberies and was involved in three jailbreaks. Last week, we explored the official story of Dillinger's personal life, as well as his career in crime. The FBI started pursuing Dillinger in March of 1934. That July, they shot and killed him outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago. This week, we'll cover three conspiracy theories that deal with Dillinger's life, two of which claim that it may not have ended so abruptly. Conspiracy theory number one, John Dillinger didn't commit his crimes alone. 
In fact, he had secret accomplices, like lawyers, prison workers, and even law enforcement officials who helped him escape prison and get away with crimes. Conspiracy theory number two. The FBI never shot Dillinger. They accidentally murdered a man named Jimmy Lawrence instead, then covered it up to avoid embarrassment. Finally, conspiracy theory number three. John Dillinger staged the murder of an innocent man so that he could run free. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Indiana's Crown Point Jail was supposed to be an inescapable stonewalled fortress. So, when John Dillinger made his escape in March of 1934, many wondered if he'd been helped. And it was that curiosity that inspired our first theory, that Dillinger had a ring of informants, including police officers, that abetted his crimes. Among the many names of those that have been implicated are his attorney, Louis Paquette, Crown Point Jail's handyman, Sam Cahoon, the jail's chef, Jim Dexter, and fingerprint expert, Ernest Blunk. Officially, none of these men were conspirators. According to history, in January of 1934, police arrested John Dillinger for the murder of Officer William O'Malley. He was then held in Crown Point Jail to await trial. At the time, Dillinger didn't have an attorney, but he just so happened to be contacted, out of the blue, by the most qualified man for the job, defense attorney Louis Piquette. Before his case went to trial, Dillinger escaped prison using only a wooden gun, blackened with shoe polish, that he made himself. In order to get out, he used the fake firearm to take two employees hostage, one of whom was the jail's deputy sheriff, Ernest Blunk. But how did John Dillinger get the wood to make his gun, if he even made it at all? 
Well, let's start with Dillinger's lawyer, Louis Paquette. He was the attorney in the criminal world. Paquette was often an honored guest at Al Capone's lavish banquets, rubbing elbows with the nation's most dangerous criminals. Many were Paquette's clients, or one day would be. In short, Paquette's ethics were questionable at best. There was likely nothing stopping him from helping a murderer escape from prison if enough money was involved. That said, Dillinger had a strong case against him. There were eyewitness accounts placing him at the scene. He was found in possession of the money stolen from the bank on the day William O'Malley was shot. So why did Paquette take the case? The two most likely reasons would be either money or notoriety. At first glance, it might appear that Paquette wanted the press attention. Dillinger was undoubtedly one of the highest-profile cases he'd ever taken on. The trial was sure to make national headlines. Fame could be reason enough if he knew the trial would happen. But as it turns out, Paquette knew that Dillinger planned to escape. According to some accounts, during one of their pre-trial meetings, John apparently slipped Paquette a small, folded-up piece of paper. He asked his attorney to deliver it to his girlfriend, Billy Frechette. Paquette was naturally curious, so he looked inside. It wasn't a love letter. It wasn't an apology. It was an escape plan. The note asked Billy to pass on information to one of Dillinger's gang members, John Red Hamilton. It included an accurate floor plan of Crown Point Jail and a detailed description of how to get out. For Paquette, this would have been a turning point. If he knew that Dillinger planned to escape before the trial, achieving any sort of notoriety was off the table. And if he wasn't going to get famous off the case, what would stop him from getting rich? John Dillinger would likely have paid well for his freedom, especially if he didn't need to rely on a jury of his peers. We know for a fact that Louis Paquette was invested in John Dillinger as a client, whether he always planned to be a conspirator or not. Some believe that he might have even snuck his business card into the jail to reach him quite possibly through the prison's handyman, Sam Cahoon, or the chef, Jim Dexter. And if Paquette could sneak a business card into the prison, what was stopping him from sneaking in a wooden gun? According to Dillinger, The Untold Story by G. Russell Gerardin and William J. Helmer, Louis Paquette returned to Crown Point on February 19th to meet with Dillinger. And during their conversation, Dillinger said, They're afraid of me around here. If I had a gun, I could take myself out. How about getting one to me? Well, that may have been a hint. Then, Paquette's investigator, Arthur O'Leary, had an idea. He recalled a story about a man in Wisconsin who used a wooden gun to escape from prison. It just so happens that O'Leary also knew a German craftsman in Chicago who specialized in woodworking. We don't know how a wooden gun ended up in John Dillinger's possession. What we do know is that on March 3rd of 1934, he had one, and his escape was suspiciously easy. 
At around 9.15 a.m., 64-year-old prison handyman Samuel Cahoon unlocked the door to Dillinger's cell block, allegedly to let in one of the janitors. When he did, Dillinger shoved his wooden pistol into Cahoon's stomach and told him to call for the deputy sheriff. When Ernest Blunk arrived, Dillinger locked Cahoon in a jail cell and instructed Blunk to summon the warden. When the warden arrived, Dillinger locked him in another open cell, and Ernest Blunk became his primary hostage. One by one, Dillinger locked away the prison guards with nothing but a wooden gun shined with black shoe polish and the assistance of his fellow prisoner, Herbert Youngblood. Blunk, Youngblood, and Dillinger then made their way to the administration offices where Dillinger and Youngblood stole submachine guns and ammunition. They then made their way across the street to the garage. Waiting for them was a mechanic who some believe was hired by Piquette. The mechanic had a car waiting for their getaway. It belonged to the female sheriff of the jail, Lillian Hawley. Not only does author G. Russell Gerardin believe that Louis Paquette played a hand in Dillinger's escape, he implicates the primary hostage as well. Fingerprint expert Ernest Blunk. According to Gerardin, Paquette told Dillinger that Blunk was, quote, in the know, but Blunk was too afraid to help them smuggle in a weapon. He didn't want to risk any implication. But while he may not have helped smuggle anything in, he could have easily let himself be taken hostage. Making himself into a victim feels like a convenient way to avoid suspicion. Surely he would have recognized a fake gun when he saw one. Well, Blunk was a fingerprint expert. He didn't have much need for a weapon, nor did he have much combat training. Dillinger had previously smuggled real guns into prison before. It's not unreasonable that Blunk thought his life was in danger. What about Sam Cahoon? Well, some have suggested that he had personal ties to Paquette. Among other responsibilities, the handyman had access to all the doors at Crown Point. On the day Dillinger escaped, some claim he opened the doors while the prisoners were still roaming around as if he was inviting Dillinger to put his plan in motion. Cahoon was reportedly an alcoholic, but in the days leading up to Dillinger's escape, he apparently sobered up. Perhaps Dillinger threatened him. He told him that he needed to have a clear mind or else. As for Paquette, he almost certainly had some kind of hand in Dillinger's escape, whether it was delivering the wooden gun or just delivering messages to the outside world. As for the chef, Jim Dexter, well, some believe he got Dillinger the jail's floor plan. Maybe. There are unconfirmed accounts of him assisting other inmates. As for what happened that day, there's no hard evidence to warrant any serious suspicion. Records of the day are vague. So vague, there are those who believe details were withheld to cover up the involvement of the East Chicago mob in Indiana, namely Martin Zarkovich, a police officer some believe to be a double agent for the mob. But we'll get to Zarkovich later. This isn't the only theory involving him. 
Let's consider for a moment that Dillinger did have a spider web of informants. Wouldn't helping a renowned bank robber result in some bragging rights? It's hard to believe that everyone would keep quiet about working with a celebrity criminal like John Dillinger. Perhaps, but even the courts were suspicious of most of these men. An affidavit was later filed charging Sam Cahoon and Ernest Blunk with assisting Dillinger in his escape, and they were both indicted in relation to the incident. Yes, but Blunk was tried and acquitted, and Cahoon's charges were dropped before ever going to trial. True, but in 1935, Paquette was charged with harboring Dillinger while he underwent plastic surgery. He was acquitted on those charges, but Paquette would be sentenced to two years in prison and given a $10,000 fine later that year after being convicted of harboring Dillinger's associate, Homer Van Meter. Even though no one served time for helping Dillinger with his escape, it's not out of the question that he had help of some kind. Which is why I give this theory an 8 out of 10, with 1 being the least likely and 10 being the most. Most criminals don't act alone, and in Dillinger's case, it's possible some of his accomplices may have helped him escape death. Up next, we'll explore the possibility that the FBI made a mistake and actually murdered one of Dillinger's doppelgangers. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. There is a possibility that outlaw John Dillinger didn't conduct his infamous Crown Point prison escape alone. In fact, we think it's likely that he had help from his lawyer, Louis Paquette, if not from several employees of the jail. But Dillinger's story didn't end after his escape. It's possible that he may have received additional help later in life, this time from the very men who are hellbent on catching him. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two, that the FBI accidentally murdered a man named Jimmy Lawrence, a small-time petty thief, and covered it up to avoid humiliation. It might sound outrageous, but believe it or not, there was plenty of precedent for cases of mistaken identity. 
To police, it seemed like there were John Dillinger lookalikes everywhere they went. On May 8, 1934, Ralph Allsman was escorted into a Minnesota police station. He had done nothing wrong. He was a quiet, unassuming man, but he just so happened to share an uncanny resemblance to John Dillinger. He even had the same moles and scars. Allsman told the police that they had the wrong guy, but the police didn't believe him until they took his fingerprints. And it wasn't the first or last time something like that had happened. By some estimations, on nearly 20 different occasions, Allsman was stopped by police in various states because of his resemblance to Dillinger. Then, on June 19, 1934, Chicago native Fred Weber stepped outside after seeing a show at the theater. Waiting for him were six heavily armed squadrons of police officers with tear gas. The police were so certain that they caught John Dillinger that they threatened to blow Weber's brains out if he made one wrong move. G. Clay Baker stepped off a plane to a similar experience, a face full of guns. Which is all to say, the police had a history of getting the wrong guy. And Dillinger was good at hiding in plain sight. On April 9th, 1934, a little over one month after the fugitives escaped from Crown Point Jail, Dillinger and his girlfriend, Billy Frechette, pulled up to a Chicago bar. Billy kissed Dillinger goodbye, got out of the car, and walked into the bar alone. She was scheduled to meet someone to secure a new apartment for her and her criminal boyfriend. Dillinger's attorney, Louis Paquette, was the one who set up the meeting. Billy took a seat at the bar when another man, the bartender's brother, sat down next to her. He claimed that he could help them find a place to live for a small fee. But before any business happened, the FBI burst through the door and arrested Billy. They didn't even know that they had just run past John Dillinger, who was outside waiting for her in the car. But it was still a big break for the FBI. They finally had something on Dillinger, his girlfriend. They hoped that maybe Dillinger might arrive to collect her, and when he did, they'd be ready. While Billy was detained, Dillinger wrestled with the idea of breaking her out of jail. He ultimately decided that staying out of the public eye was more important. Some would call it heartless, others would call it practical. Either way, Dillinger let Billy sit in a cell and deal with the police on her own. Better her than him. When they arrested her, the police confiscated all of Billy's personal items, including an old photograph that was found in her purse. It was a picture of a young Billy cuddled up next to a man, but it wasn't John Dillinger. It's not clear who he was exactly, but some have suggested that it was Jimmy Lawrence, a petty thief. He was an old boyfriend of Billy's. He looked strikingly similar to John Dillinger, but why would she be carrying a photograph of another man? It's possible that Dillinger intentionally put it there to use Jimmy Lawrence's appearance to his advantage. The police were already mistaking ordinary citizens for the notorious bank robber. Adding another lookalike would only throw them further off his scent. 
To add to the confusion, we know John Dillinger got plastic surgery to alter his appearance, but it was less than successful. He was hoping to wake up with a different nose, no cleft chin, and a mole and fingerprint removal, but the difference was minimal. According to the official story, Dillinger moved to Chicago after his surgery, and he operated under an alias, Jimmy Lawrence, a.k.a. Billy's ex-beau, the same man who bore a striking resemblance to Dillinger and whose photograph was found in Billy's purse. By June of 1934, Dillinger, acting as Jimmy Lawrence, had a presence in Chicago. He started dating a new girl, Polly Hamilton. Dillinger told Polly that he worked at the Chicago Board of Trade and moved to Chicago to escape his ex-wife. It's unclear whether Polly knew any more than that. But some people believe that the man Polly was dating wasn't John Dillinger in disguise, that it was actually Jimmy Lawrence. Polly worked in a bar owned by her friend, Anna Sage. As we discussed last episode, Sage was a Romanian immigrant on the brink of deportation. Anna was always suspicious of Jimmy Lawrence. After all, he looked an awful lot like John Dillinger. So Anna contacted the East Chicago police officer, Martin Zarkovich, the same man who some people suspect may have had ties to the East Chicago mob and may have even had a hand in Dillinger's escape from Crown Point Prison. Anna, determined to stay in the United States, allegedly offered Zarkovich information on public enemy number one in exchange for citizenship. Anna, Zarkovich, and Melvin Purvis of the FBI then arranged the stakeout at the Biograph Theater on July 22, 1934, that ended in John Dillinger's death. Believe it or not, right after Dillinger's alleged death, Purvis acknowledged that the body didn't really look like Dillinger. According to J. Robert Nash, author of The Dillinger Dossier, Purvis rolled the dead body over and said, neat piece of plastic surgery. It may have been a genuine statement from Purvis about the recent work Dillinger had had done. Or maybe it wasn't John Dillinger. Up next, the possibility that John Dillinger faked his own death. Now, back to the story. The official story is that John Dillinger was shot and killed by the authorities outside the Biograph Theater on July 22, 1934. But maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was exactly who the dead man had claimed to be, Jimmy Lawrence. But if that was the case, an autopsy would have brought it to light. Except the official autopsy report mysteriously went missing from both the morgue and the FBI archives. A copy wasn't found until the 1980s in the medical examiner's office, crinkled, yellowing, and stuffed in a brown paper bag. It stated that the man murdered was 32 years old. At the time of his death, Dillinger had just turned 31. The body of the deceased measured 5 foot 7 and weighed 160 pounds. 
Just months before his alleged death, wanted posters recorded Dillinger at 5'7 and an eighth and 153 pounds. Those are minor discrepancies, nothing that couldn't be explained by human error or Dillinger gaining a few pounds. But autopsy reports are meant to be meticulous. An eighth of an inch does matter when identifying public enemy number one. And there weren't just minor discrepancies. Some note that the report left out some information about Dillinger's famous scars, one on his left hand and one on his upper lip, both of which were listed on the FBI's official identification order. However, in 1935, the fingerprints of the corpse were identified as Dillinger's fingerprints. It doesn't get any more conclusive than that. But allegedly, the man who confirmed them was Deputy Ernest Blunk. As we mentioned, he might have been helping Dillinger the whole time. During an autopsy, the corpse's fingerprints are officially recorded on government documents and then compared to medical records. Dillinger wouldn't be able to stage that. He would if he had friends in law enforcement who could help him forge those documents, like Martin Zorkovich or some of his supposed connections in the Chicago PD. The fingerprint identification of the corpse was taken on a Chicago Police Department card. Technically, the print should have been recorded by the FBI. The card is dated July 22, 1934, but... Some claim that the autopsy wasn't completed until the following evening, and there was one other discrepancy. The autopsy states the man murdered had a rheumatic heart condition and arteriosclerosis, a condition that hardens the walls of the arteries. Dillinger wouldn't have been allowed to join the Navy if the heart condition was a reality, much less have the stamina to play baseball. A rheumatic heart condition usually develops after a rheumatic fever, and rheumatic fever is most common between the ages of 5 to 15. It is possible for Dillinger to have developed the condition later in life, yet the odds of it developing late in life are lower. And consider this. It's estimated that Dillinger got away with about $500,000 in his career. By today's standards, that's nearly $10 million and the Associated Press estimates that the FBI spent the equivalent of almost $39 million trying to catch him. If they shot the wrong guy and let Dillinger go again, it would be humiliating, enough to consider covering it up. Which leads us to the most damning evidence of all. The man the FBI killed had brown eyes. Dillinger's eyes were distinctively blue, though some called them gray. But if it was Jimmy Lawrence and not Dillinger, wouldn't someone have reported Jimmy missing? Maybe. But if Polly Hamilton was dating the real Jimmy Lawrence, he might not have had a family to report him missing. As he said, he moved to Chicago to escape his ex-wife, who was after him for alimony money, which means he didn't want to be found. Perhaps Lawrence's family already assumed he was missing and had disappeared intentionally. And when the Dillinger family was brought in to identify his body, officials prepared them by saying he had undergone plastic surgery. They claimed that he would be unrecognizable, which would be a convenient narrative for someone trying to cover up the body's true identity. 
Ultimately, there are too many details that don't add up. Why was the corpse missing Dillinger's scars? Why were his eyes a different color? While we can't say for certain whether the man killed was Jimmy Lawrence, evidence seems to point that the FBI did cover up something. For these reasons, I give this theory a 7 out of 10. I agree. It's certainly possible that the FBI accidentally got the wrong person. Some theorists also believe that it wasn't an accident, that John Dillinger planned the entire thing with the help of East Chicago PD officer Martin Sarkovich so that Dillinger would escape the clutches of the law once and for all. Which is our third conspiracy theory. According to the Dillinger dossier by J. Robert Nash, Anna Sage, Martin Zarkovich, a member of the East Chicago PD, and John Dillinger were longtime acquaintances, which was why, as we've mentioned, some believe Zarkovich helped Dillinger break out of Crown Point Prison. Some suggest Zarkovich received a large sum of money from Dillinger as a thank you. According to theorists, Zarkovich knew Dillinger needed a place to stay after recovering from plastic surgery, so he asked Anna Sage to keep him as a guest in her apartment. As we mentioned, Anna was facing deportation and saw a way to use Dillinger. If she could make a deal with the FBI, perhaps she could secure her citizenship. So, seizing the opportunity, Anna and Zarkovich concocted a plan to fake Dillinger's death and then help him flee the country. In a letter received by his father in June of that year, Dillinger said, I will be leaving soon and you will not need to worry anymore. It's possible that Anna, Zarkovich, and Dillinger knowingly put Jimmy Lawrence in danger. They paid him a healthy sum of money to dress up like public enemy number one, but never told him why. Then they informed the FBI and staged their trap. What happened that night at the Biograph could have been part of an elaborate plan. Jimmy, Anna, and Polly exited the theater around 10.30 p.m. that night. Purvis spotted them, lit the cigar, and then... Jimmy Lawrence was murdered. That night, the deceased wore a ring on his left hand, one that looked identical to the ring in Billy's photograph. He also wore prescription glasses. The real John Dillinger had perfect eyesight. For these reasons alone, I give this theory a six out of 10, which means all three of our theories are, at the very least, plausible. To recap, conspiracy theory number one is that Dillinger's inside sources and informants are the reason he was able to evade capture for so many months. It's very possible that Dillinger's lawyer, Louis Piquette, assisted in his escapes on more than one occasion. Conspiracy theory number two is that the FBI murdered Jimmy Lawrence and they covered it up. The glaring issues with the autopsy report certainly suggest that Dillinger might not have been killed like the FBI insisted. And conspiracy theory number three, John Dillinger staged the murder of an innocent man. 
This version of the story makes John Dillinger out to be heartless. He worked with a circle of informants to set up someone to be killed just so he could walk free. It would be a rather elaborate ploy, but it's still possible. The aspect of this case that I find the most compelling is the inconsistent autopsy report, which is why I think the most believable theory is number two, that the FBI agents were mistaken, shot the wrong man, and covered it up. And there's one last anecdote to support that theory. In July 2019, nearly 85 years after the Biograph Theater shooting, Dillinger's niece and nephew filed a permit to have the body exhumed with the Indiana State Department of Health. The exhumation was planned for September of that year, but Crown Hill Cemetery refused to allow it. It's not clear whether the FBI had a hand in this decision, but they did release a statement shortly after reaffirming that the man in the grave was indeed John Herbert Dillinger. Dillinger's nephew filed a lawsuit against the cemetery, but lost. They were eligible to appeal their case until January 15, 2020, but they chose not to. Dillinger's nephew, Mike Thompson, said, It is my belief and opinion that it is critical to learn whether Dillinger lived beyond his reported date of death of July 22, 1934. If he was not killed on that date, I am interested in discovering what happened to him, where he lived, whether he had children, and whether any such children or grandchildren are living today. While it's unclear why they abandoned their efforts, it could have something to do with the several slabs of concrete that were poured on top of Dillinger's casket sometime after his burial. While no one ever claimed to see John Dillinger after his death, there were letters that surfaced in the 1960s, each one allegedly signed by the notorious outlaw. One even claimed that Dillinger was still alive and had been living in Los Angeles, They were all dismissed as fake. But maybe they weren't. The events that took place outside the Biograph Theater on July 22, 1934, have been retold countless times. But we'll never truly know what happened in the days leading up to it. It appears the official story died along with whoever was murdered that fateful night. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, 
Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.